The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Exodus 3, 5 through 7. You're listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm your host, Selwyn Heidi, here today with David Apple to continue our discussion of the book of Revelation. David, how are you doing today? Doing great, Selwyn. Doing well. It's been a while since I've been on. My computer was suddenly crashed, and so I've been I've been living without a computer for a while, but we're back now. I thought you were going to say your computer was suddenly raptured or something. Well, I don't know who I, you know, they attack us in different ways. And I don't know which demons got in uh, through the wires, but somehow they destroyed it. And uh, it was, it happened all kind of like right before Holy Week, kind of in the last couple weeks of Lent. And um, well, that's okay. You know, what the demons don't know is that I don't type up my sermons anyways. So it was fine. <laughs> so they ain't going to stop anything. Right. <laughs> How's the weather out your way? Oh man, it's hot today. Seriously, it's hot. Um, I think the the real feel is supposed to be 99 today. Sunshine, humidity's coming. Summer, if it's not here yet, uh, it's right around the corner. Yeah, see, now that's that's totally different from my experience, but that's nothing unusual there. Yeah. Today's actually very, very nice. We had a very nice rain yesterday, kind of rained steadily all day, which is wonderful in this part of the world. And things are green and it's the trees are beginning to bud and the rhubarb is popping up and pretty exciting. It's an exciting yeah. time here in North Dakota. Yeah, so the the dogwoods have already bloomed and the blooms have all fallen. So all of our flower all of our tree the the flowers on the trees are all gone now. There's still some flowers like the lilies are over, the daffodils are over, all that early flower stuff that's done. So now it is time for everything just to be green and to grow. Good, good. I know the apple trees over here by the parsonage, they haven't flowered yet. That usually doesn't happen until towards the end of this month. But I'm looking forward to really getting into the ground and starting to plant some stuff again. And it, it's going to be a good year. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Solid. Anyway, we want to continue our discussion of the book of Revelation. So we left off last time talking about chapter 15 and we're now moving into chapter 16. So what do we what do we want to keep in mind as we begin this transition, David? Yeah, I think it's good just to, um, it's probably been a while since our listeners and since we've talked about this. Of course, Zellin and I read and meditate on Revelation every day. Uh, but <laughs> the this is the third cycle of, of the seven judgments. So you had the original seven are the seven seals that are broken open by the Lamb. Uh, who receives the scroll. Then the second seven is, uh, what, the trumpets. Mm -hmm. And then now the third seven is the pouring out of bowls. And uh, what is being poured out here is described as the, God tells an angel to go out and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so you have this, we've said this many times, but the book of Revelation is not just, I don't think it's simply a repeat always of the same thing over and over and over again, but it's an, an intensification. And so as the book progresses, the judgments are progressing as well. They're getting more intense. They're getting more widespread. Um, they're getting more permanent, maybe is a way to say it. And so we are progressing here towards, we've discussed this too, Zellin, right? Whether the book is talking about things that happened in the first century, um, whether it's talking about things that happened in the 16th century, <laughs> whether it's talking about things that are about to happen in the 21st century, or if somehow it's talking about, you know, these things have happened again and again, and they continue to happen, and they will one day um, sort of climactically happen. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, but so this is coming to the end. We're looking at, at kind of the final sort of judgments. Yeah, and I think especially because of the 
severity of the, the bull judgments. I, I find it hard to think that this would refer to anything other than close to the end. You know, that this is that this is looking forward to the day when God will pour out his entire wrath and it will come to an end and then eternity will begin. But I suppose that leads to a natural question. What's, you know, what, you know, I think we talked about this last time as well, talking about the wrath of God. How, do, how should we understand that as we're going into this chapter, David? Yeah, the wrath of God is, uh, is actually very important biblically to understand, uh, historically to understand. And just in the, the experience of, of every person, there are instances of God's wrath. There are instances of judgment that happen in the world all around us. So even though, like you just said, Zelwyn, uh, as we read these things, our minds are sort of naturally drawn to the end the last day. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you read the Bible, you see that the there are lots of instances of God's judgment coming in time and taking place in time. So the Northern Kingdom is judged in time when they're exiled. The Southern Kingdom, the same thing. Um, the Babylonians, same thing, right? You've been weighed and found wanting and the kingdom is taken away. The, the year 70 AD kind of stands out as a big moment in time where God's judgment was visited on a particular nation. And we see that happen again and again in history. St. Augustine writes at a time when the Roman Empire was coming to an end. And so even though that wasn't the end of the world, I think this is a helpful way to think of it. There's often these times where the end of the world as we know it happens. And those things are not random happenings, um, but they're actually instances of God's wrath, God's judgment being poured out. And so we want to think about, well, why would God ever have wrath? Is that okay for him to have wrath? What's the difference between his wrath and our wrath? Because this comes up again and again, and the Lord is the living Lord, right? And he does visit He does visit his judgments on the earth. Well, and I think especially in our circles, someone might stop and say, but I thought that God poured out his wrath on Jesus. So why is he continuing to pour out his wrath after Jesus? Like, is God is God still angry with sin after the cross? What do you say, David? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's important to say that God's wrath is always just. So God is not, uh, God's wrath is different than like, say, my my anger, I, I might get irritated and irate with, um, say, my kids spill milk on the table. Okay, so every father gets angry at his children when they spill milk, right, Zelwyn? <laughs> um, and some, I suppose you could say that it's uh, maybe that's just, you know, I paid for that milk. The kids spilled the milk. They're wasting my money or something. But that's that's such a that's such a bad analogy because. You know, the normal state of affairs in the world is not man is neutral and God is, you know, sort of watching us from heaven and seeing like maybe they're going to slip up today and then I can, you know, I can get angry with them. The state of things is that man is in rebellion against the creator. And so God's justice, God's justice uh, demands wrath, um, right? And it would be it would be unjust for God to wink away sin. It would be unjust for him to look at the world and say, it's actually all just fine. You know, it's, you know, the, the meme with the dog and the world's burning down and the dog's sitting there saying, it's fine. This is fine. This is fine. This is fine. So the normal, I think we, we've got to establish the normal state of man in original sin, unregenerate man, is that he is under the wrath of God. You know, cue your Jonathan Edwards sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which, okay, you might not like that sermon because you only read two paragraphs of it or whatever. Um, But you could also read Romans 1 and you can see this, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven Mm -hmm. um, against the rebellion of man. So it's important to say this is just. This is right. It's not wrong for the judge, the creator and the judge of all things, to look at his uh, rebellious world and to say, this should be punished. 
Now, what God has done through his son, Jesus, is he has, provi- he has provided um, salvation in a just way. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to send Jesus and he's going to sort of provide a hole through my, through my wrath. But he absorbs the wrath that should come on sinners. And now through Jesus, by faith in him, there is salvation from the wrath of God. But that doesn't mean that outside of Christ and apart from faith in Christ, that there is no wrath at work in the world or that that wrath is somehow, you know, unfair, you know, as if God, you know, as if man could say to God, well, look, we can do whatever we want because you sent your son Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Yeah, I think your point about being in Christ being the key is essential to understanding this because I mean, the gospel is that we are saved from the coming wrath. I mean, Jesus even says as much, you know, flee from the wrath. I mean, that's John the Baptist, but I mean, you get the point. Yeah. yeah the, the, the wrath of God is a reality that is coming upon the world, and the only way to escape it is by faith in Christ. And I, I also like how you said that the that what Christ has done is God being just in offering us that salvation as well, because Christ is not like a, oh, well, God is just kind of ignoring our sins. I think that's sometimes how we often present the gospel, right? That God just kind of overlooks our sins in Jesus. That's actually not at all what he's doing. What he's doing in Christ is dealing with those sins and, you know, giving them their due judgment but the judgment is laid on Jesus rather than on us who committed them. Yeah, mercy, sometimes these things are pitted against each other. Is God merciful or is he just? You know, and this is where, uh, you know, we would do well to kind of revisit and re-imbibe what the doctrine of divine simplicity was always meant to say, which is that the attributes of God are not in competition with each other. Right. So God, God is not 50% just and 50%, you know, 49% just and 51% mercy, like, like your sermons. So, um, <laughs> but he is, the attributes are, they're all full. They're all fully, you know, that's what it means by to be um, divine simplicity. So he is fully just and also fully merciful. And this is, we would recognize this in human courts as an important thing, Right. Mercy without justice is is never true mercy. Um, you you need to have both, and this comes up often. I, I think of things that kind of these strange things to us, anyways, in the Old Testament, where you have instances of say the avenger of blood. You know why why would God provide in His law an avenger of blood when someone is murdered? Well, because He is interested in justice, so that the murderer meets justice. And the avenger of blood is not just a God making an allowance for something to happen, but that's actually part of God's own. He is going to avenge his people. He protects his people. And so the when we come to passages like uh, Revelation 16, I think it's important to see that God's wrath being poured out on the world is not disconnected from his um, desire to save his people, it's, an, it's actually part of that desire. Um, he has to protect us from our enemies. This is why the prophets often speak about God's justice, um, God's, God's judgment coming into the world. And that's a good thing. You know, the prophets are not saying, oh, we don't want judgment. They want God to act and bring his judgment on the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also when we're looking at like Revelation 16 in particular, and it's talking about the, the judgments which are coming, we're going to see that these judgments are being poured out upon the enemies of God's people, and in that case, are actually a good thing. These enemies are getting exactly what they deserve. So just by kind of way of reminder of things that have already happened in the book of Revelation that tie into this, what's the right thing to say? I don't want to just say theme because that um, doesn't fit, but um, this reality of God bringing his judgment on the earth, um, all the way back in chapter f- four, I think, um, the martyrs uh, who souls were under the altar had been crying out with the question, how long, 
right? How long, O oh Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? Which is very similar to, you know, the blood of Abel crying out for God to, to avenge him. And uh, what God says to Cain, or what, he, what God does with Cain and Abel uh, is, I think, instructive here. The Lord does avenge the blood of Abel. So he does bring, he does pass judgment on Cain and he banishes him. And I think what the, the way to understand these things, uh, God's acts of judgment, certainly, you know, recognizing that sin in the world is the, the normal state of things, that God has provided the way through his wrath by faith in his son, Jesus Christ, but that then the execution of his judgment, even though it, you know, it shakes things up, um, and it's it's no pleasant. It's not like a fun experience to go through. Um, it's always meant to bring about the salvation of his people. Um, and so, as we're going to read here about these bowls of wrath being poured out, yes, there is a, a terrifying reality to these things, and it's meant to lead us to repentance. But it's also uh, it's also a show of God's love. It's a show of His justice that He does act for his people. He doesn't just leave uh, the sinful world to go on in its sinful ways and and to totally have free course. Yeah, and I, I really do think that is something that we need to emphasize more in our time. And maybe it's the reason why we struggle with things like uh, the cursing psalms, the imprecatory psalms. We don't understand how someone could pray that God would bring damnation or judgment upon someone else. I mean, that's kind of foreign to our experience because of the way that we often approach the gospel. But when we understand the gospel as, you know, taking us out of God's wrath, as saving us from the wrath to come, and that that coming wrath will be itself a kind of gospel in that God is going to give justice to his people, then I don't think the problems are there anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and what we really want in the end uh, is to sing Babylon is fallen just forever, you know, <laughs> and you can't sing that unless you're actually, unless you rejoice that, that Babylon is actually brought to an end and everything that's involved with Babylon. So the final, the permanent solution of sin, death, the devil, these things all being done away with and all the things that go along with that. Uh, that's a cause for rejoicing. And when that happens, it's going to look like bowls of wrath being poured out on Babylon and on this fallen world. So what you're saying, David, is that you want to just do the next Revelation episode just on that song, Babylon has fallen? I believe that is uh, what's coming, chapter 17. <laughs> And 18, uh, it's you're the not, fall of Babylon. You're not even going to be talking about the actual like text or anything. You're just going to be talking no. about. <laughs> the merchants and their wailing. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a good time. No, and I, I, think, I think it's important that we keep these things in mind, especially as we go through talking about the judgments that God is going to be pouring out. I, I mean, if only because we are looking forward to that day. And that's, I mean, that really is the, the whole message of the book of Revelation. You know, the, the joy that God is coming to judge the world. And if we don't have that in mind, we're not going to understand the book. But with that, we're going to go into our first break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken.
This is Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Apold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So in the previous segment, David, we were talking about the wrath of God, which is only fitting because we're talking about the bulls. But I think it's important now to actually start digging into the text itself. So go ahead and just take us right into it. Yeah, so the so God tells this angel to go out and pour out the bulls. And the first bull then, um, I'll just read it. I think, Zelwyn, that's probably our best strategy here. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So what's going to happen as we go through, these bowls are going to be poured out on different um, parts of creation. So the earth, the waters, um, and I think finally then the air. And so every part of creation, each element, you might say, or the different layers of creation are all having a bowl poured on them. And I think with this too, we're going to see a lot of connections to things that we've talked about in previous sections, especially with the various plagues and stuff like that. And that's something to keep in mind here. Yeah, definitely. And and so, you know, you can't hear the word plagues and hear about sores coming on people without, uh, you know, at least if you're a good reader of the Bible, you're going to think about Exodus and you're going to think about what God was doing in Egypt and how he delivered his people from Pharaoh in the same, you know, in very similar terms here. Um, there were there were great acts of judgment that the Lord um, put and he gained glory for himself by executing his judgment on the gods of Egypt. Well, that's isn't that just what we're hearing right here? Um, those who have the mark of the beast, those who worship the image, those who are in league with the beast and who then were also oppressing and, you know, were persecuting the Christians, they are experiencing now something like what the Egyptians experienced when when the Lord brought his people out of Egypt. So that, that idea of the end, the final um, salvation being similar to what God did in the Exodus. The Exodus is the prototype, and here's the the archetype or the final um, end type of salvation. Yeah, and I think using that imagery too, uh, we can draw some very clear connections. I mean, say with the the sores themselves, we have a connection to like the sixth plague with the boils of in Egypt. But that would also make a clear connection uh, with the beast and his image with Pharaoh, right? That that Pharaoh, in that sense, has become a kind of uh, anti-type or type or whatever you want to say of the the beast who is to come, of the one who opposes himself to, to God. And I think drawing these kinds of connections, then we can see the similar kinds of, you know, pulling all those ideas from Exodus as, as we did in the previous chapter to talk about what is happening here with the pouring out of God's wrath. But that also emphasizes at the same time that this pouring out of wrath is meant for the deliverance of his people so that we have uh, mercy towards his people in the midst of this great wrath, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the, the you know, the value of, of making these connections between, say, Pharaoh and Nero, and even Nebuchadnezzar, um, is that you see sort of something that we mentioned earlier. This is not only describing the final, you know, the final Antichrist and the the final fulfillment, the man of lawlessness. That is certainly in view here. Um, But all through history, there are these common themes of those who are in league with the devil um, and how they operate, things that tyrants love to do, which is to absorb power to themselves and to persecute then anyone who looks to anything outside of themselves. I was just talking in my sermon this past Sunday about Darius the Mede and, you know, he makes this law that anyone who prays to the gods instead of him uh, is going to be thrown into the lion's den with Daniel, right? Well, that is typical of world governments. They love to arrogate power to themselves and say, everyone needs to look to me without necessarily saying, I am God. This is this is what tyrants do. This is what um, those who do not have the Holy Spirit, who are in positions of authority, tend to do. Well, and I think 
you know, that the, these sores are being poured upon the people who uphold the beast, who uphold the man of lawlessness, you know, his, his minions, his followers, whatever you want to call them, is something that we see also in our own time, because those are the very same people in the interest of serving their God, so to speak, will very actively persecute God's people. You know, they will be they will be the ones who will, you know, throw them into jail. They will be the ones who will be doxing them online. They will be the ones who will be doing all of these things because they think that they are in the service of their master. Yeah. Right. And the fact that these sores are being poured upon them shows that they, too, are going to get what they deserve. It's not just the man of lawlessness who is being punished. It's also those who are fawning over him that receive the wrath at this point. Yeah, this that is that comes out really well in the Exodus. God, as the Lord passes judgment on Egypt and all its uh, pomp and all its show, um, what is revealed to the Egyptians is that these things that they trusted in, these things that they served, Pharaoh and the whole pantheon of Egypt, they can't actually protect them. So finally, when the the firstborn son is killed, you know Pharaoh can't preserve the future of Israel. Whatever power Pharaoh thought he had, um, he didn't. And so this this is what is revealed on those who serve the beast is that the beast can't save you from the sores. He can't save you from the wrath of God. Yeah. And that's and that's all coming out just of this first bowl. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, to say so, nothing of the of the of the further ones, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's keep rolling then. So then the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. So you got the earth now into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Certainly the image there is of uh, rigor mortis setting in, right? The blood of a corpse, um, the waters that should be free flowing and teeming with life now are like solidifying, right? They're, they're getting all, yeah, congealed and nothing lives in them anymore. Nothing can live. Uh, well, now, I mean, this is, this is clearly a reference to the first plague, right? That the, the Nile, which was turned to blood to show that God is the, the Lord and not Pharaoh, right? So we still have the same idea and we'll have it again here in the following bowl. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail, but with the sea itself being turned into blood, uh, congealed or not, you have the idea of, I mean, the, in the, a far greater plague than even Egypt ever had. Like, this, you know, Egypt was bad enough with the Nile, which should be life-giving, becoming like blood. Now you have the seas. You have every, all the water of the great sea being turned into blood to show that, you know, God's wrath is being poured out even more than he did on Pharaoh, right? Yeah, this this is what we mean when we talk about the book of Revelation, not simply recycling on itself, but intensifying. So I, I think the original, you know, if you go back and you look through these series of sevens, there's mentions of like a quarter of the water, then a third of the water is affected. And now we're approaching near universal scale where the whole sea, you know, like you said, it's not just one river in Egypt. It's not just, you know, one lake. It's the whole, the whole thing. And I think here we would, we would connect the seas, the oceans, um, the huge bodies of water. They're all falling under judgment. They're all experiencing this pouring out of wrath. And I don't think we should overlook either the fact that the beast in the book of Revelation, the first beast, came out of the sea. So this is a judgment against him. I mean, you also have mention in multiple places in the Bible of, you know, beasts like Leviathan playing in the sea. And so to have him also die, you know, the one that could not be conquered by man in that sense, I think is also showing the severity of the judgment, that all of these great things are being judged and are dying, and the beast himself, which came forth from the sea, is receiving his own due judgment, right? Yeah, I think that's a great point to make. The the um, earthly, the sea is the source of, um, in Daniel's visions, um, these kingdoms of the earth that come up and they're seen as terrifying beasts, right? They come out of the sea. And so the sea as this source of 
not just of water, but the source of the kingdoms of mankind, the kingdoms of the earth that so often set themselves against Christ, against the anointed one of God, um, that now those all those powers that come out of the sea are also falling into judgment. Yeah. And so we see the, again, the severity of God's judgment, the severity of his wrath being poured out, that the entire sea in this sense is becoming as blood. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this helps us to, you know, to understand, you know, to, to read these things according to their genre helps us to see that we're not, we're not necessarily looking for someday. Now, could this literally happen? I suppose in the end, God could do that, right? God could make all the waters become like solidified blood. But what we're talking about, I think, is much more in line when when it talks about the sea experiencing God's wrath, when John describes it as, you know, turning into the blood of a corpse, it's the drying up of everything that comes out of the sea without necessarily meaning that the this is literally going to happen. Yeah. I, and, and I think it's fully appropriate then to also to connect all of these ideas together uh, because of the different ways in which the sea is used, even within the scriptures. So, but let's, let's continue yeah. on with the, the third one here. All right. So. so the third, the third bowl is also going to affect waters, but now we move from the sea to the moving waters, right? To the rivers. So it says the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water. So the things that lead into the sea and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So again, similar. you get an added element here in terms of the, the first two bowls of wrath. You get just the description of what happened. Now there's this response. The angels call out, this is right, this is proper, this is just. You know, they're doing what we did in the first segment. This is just what, exactly what is deserved. And then the altar, which reminds us of the, the saints or the martyrs who were under the altar, they're now calling out and saying, yes, this is true. This is just. Yeah. And I think... The point of this bowl to distinguish it from the previous one, because it kind of seems like it's just, you know, the second bowl, but done over again, same as the second verse, same as the first. But I think the difference between these two is that the response is the point, because the, the reason why God is pouring out his bowl upon the moving waters to turn them into blood is because of those who have shed the blood of the saints. In other words, he is giving back to them exactly what they have done to God's people. Whereas in the second bowl, we have just a more general judgment being laid out upon all things, you know, upon the the sea and upon those which come forth from the sea. This is an actual retribution. This is giving them exactly what they have done as a punishment for their treatment of the saints. Yeah, and this is when we talk about God's vengeance, you know, you, you can think of Romans 12 here. Um, do not, brothers, do not take vengeance, leave it to the Lord. He is the avenger of blood, right? That's what I, that's why I brought up that, you know, figure from the, the law of Moses, um, that the Lord himself in the end is the one who avenges his people. And that is a great source of comfort. It's a great source of confidence for Christians to know that there is someone who, and it's the Lord, himself, right? It's not just someone, but there is one who will make everything right in the end, who will bring everything uh, under his justice. And so, you know, it's not up to us to right every wrong because the Lord will do that. He will, he will see to it. I, I would be remiss to not point out that the angel who says these things is the angel of the waters. We have a, a territorial spirit of sorts, <laughs> Although a good one, right? Yes, he, one in one in God's um, on God's side, and so I would encourage to go back and to listen to that episode as well. But the the fact that this angel, who is the one who is being 
affected, I guess his, his domain is being affected. He is the one who, who speaks. He is the one who says that you are just for bringing these judgments. And so I think that's, I don't think that's a incidental detail either. No, I think that's a great point to make. It's, these are the things under his power, so to speak, right? That the Lord has angels. Um, and you know, we, we might not be privy to all the details of the hierarchy of heaven and what angel does, what, where, when, uh, but he recognizes that what's happening, he, he recognizes what we often struggle to see, which is that this is just, that this is proper. This is right. Um, it's not, a, you know, it's not just a natural disaster that occurs for no reason. Uh, but that it's appropriate. And he makes the connection, which you've made, Zelwyn, and called our attention to. These things are happening because of what has been done to the church, that the church is at the center of um, God's providence. Um, He works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The church is always in view in the book of Revelation, and God's protection of his people is, you know, we could we could talk about uh, what's at the heart of the what's what's at the center of the universe. It's the church. The church God has set us as the apple of His eye, and whoever touches the church is going to experience that wrath. And I think as we come to the end of this segment too, uh, making those connections back to Exodus again, you have the the Egyptians, for example, digging along the sides of the Nile in order to find water. And I think it's exactly the same kind of idea here, that those who are oppressing the people, those who are enslaving God's church, are the ones who are receiving this judgment. And even as they uh, strive to find something in order to escape it, they're not able to do so. That this this vengeance, in that sense, is complete. And uh, they are they're forced into basically like a terrible position to be in, just and even to attempt to survive, which of course they're not going to be able to do so. Yeah, yeah, the drying up, you know, the sea is the final source of all the waters, uh, but here is the original source. Uh, I'm sorry, not the source of the waters, but it's the final destination of the waters in the sea. Um, mm-hmm. But the source of the waters, that which bubbles up out of the ground, you know, the waters that are beneath the earth. This is what I meant by the layers, every layer of creation, the earth, the dry land, the waters, the water beneath the earth, all of these things are coming under God's judgment. There is no part of creation um, that is kind of neutral ground. There is no part of creation that can say, you know, I am independent of God. Here is a safe harbor for those who want to be independent of the Lord. Absolutely. Well, let's go on to the the fourth bowl, and we'll talk about that before we go into break. Yeah, so again, uh, and you'll notice here, the fourth with the fourth bowl, there is an in something that's similar to what we've already heard, and then there's going to be an added element. So the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Yeah, and I think I think that last bit especially, that they do not repent, is important to note here because the whole purpose of these plagues at this point, the whole purpose of these bowls is not to bring these people to repentance. God's wrath being poured out in this way is a judgment from which they cannot escape. And I think we need to really emphasize that. This is not like, oh, God's giving them one last chance before you know, that the end comes. No, the, the end has come. <laughs> there is no more chances. Uh, God is, is pouring out his wrath upon these people, and they refuse to repent and give him glory because, well, they cannot believe. They have been hardened to the point of, in this case, no return. Yeah, I think I think hardening is the, is the key concept here that um, those who have set themselves against the Lord as God pours out his wrath, they harden themselves even further, or they are hard. You know, this is the mystery of, of the hardening of the heart. Who starts it? Who finishes it? You know, we could get into all of that. But the reality is that that process of hardening eventually reaches a point where there is no return. 
And so even these extreme measures, these these mighty acts, these great judgments of God, think again of Pharaoh, as his power is being shown to be really nothing in Exodus, um, he still refuses to listen to the Lord, right? He wants to hold on to his power. And as it's being stripped away, it makes him angrier and angrier. And I think that's what you find here in chapter uh, 16, that, you know, they, they curse the name of God. They refuse to repent. That's going to be, that's going to come back again in the next bowl that will come to, but this refusal to repent. And, you know, you might, you might also see in this that the wrath of God does not lead to repentance, right? The wrath of God might uh, display to someone that their power is limited, but it doesn't actually convert a person. Um, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. He delays and there needs to be um, the witness of his people. That's what actually converts the nations. Um, the display of his wrath and of his fury um, only leads them to greater and greater anger. Yeah. And also with the, the pouring out of the bowl on the sun, um, we, we've seen the new layer of creation, right? Those things which are in the skies above, the sun itself becoming an instrument of God's wrath, becoming an instrument of his judgment. I mean, all of these things are being used against those who have oppressed the church, and yet they still refuse to repent because of the hardness of their heart. I mean, we're going to see that again as we go forward in the book here and talk about the further bowls. But is there anything you want to say at this point before we go into break, David? No, I think the the emphasis on, you know, and you'll see this in the next two bowls also, um, there's always this repetition. Some part of creation falls under judgment and becomes instead of a, a gift to all creation, it becomes a curse. But here the added thing is the response of those who experience um, the sun's scorching heat. They curse God. They recognize this comes from God and we hate him for it. And with that, we're going to go into our next break with more Word Fitly Spoken. to a word fitly spoken. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here today with David Apold, continuing our discussion of the book of Revelation. So we've gotten through four of the bowls of God's wrath in chapter 16, David, and we're now moving into the fifth bowl. So go ahead and introduce this bowl for us. Yeah, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So the repetition here is of just of what we, we heard in the fourth bowl, that there still is this hardening and this refusal to repent. The new thing here is um, what is, what is the, the bowl is poured on. So up till now, it's been the different parts of creation, the earth, the waters, the, the sun. And now it's the, the wrath of God is poured out specifically on um, the beast, on his throne. And um, I think that we had a reference to the throne of Satan back in the letters, uh, back in chapters two and three, um, the throne of, of Satan's kingdom. Um, well, now you get, a, again, a reference to that, the throne, the seat of his power uh, is experiencing this wrath of God. And the darkness then falls over, not just the throne itself, but over the whole kingdom. Well, darkness like this is often used in the Bible as a sign of God's judgment. Obviously, we have a clear reference to 
the plagues of Egypt again with the ninth plague, if I remember correctly, uh, being that of darkness being poured out on Egypt for three days. Uh, you also have a great darkness being poured out on Good Friday uh, when God's judgment is laid upon Christ. So this idea of darkness is one of general judgment. And in this case, it is being poured out upon the kingdom of the beast in particular. But should we understand it as a, a literal darkness? Is it a meta metaphorical darkness? I mean, how should we understand what God is doing in this case, David? I think, again, it's, it's similar to our discussion of the, the seas turning into a blood, like the blood of a corpse, right? And so uh, it could be that in the end, um, when these things come to their, their final fruition, that the whole world is going to fall into darkness. You know, the sun will no longer, the sun will cease to give light. Uh, but I think here uh, we should take it as because it's the throne of the of the beast that is affected here, that throne, the source of the beast's power in the world, that that is the thing that is now darkened. So no longer can the beast provide any kind of light. And here I would take light in its, um, you know, I would I would say this is apocalyptic language. It's the apocalyptic genre. It's not necessarily saying, you know, Every person is going to just, you know, lights out. I think there still will be lights in the world, uh, but the the guiding light, so to speak, of the beast, the whatever philosophies, whatever ideas that he uses um, to to cast his veil over people, those things will be shown to be um, a darkness, a great darkness that they can't actually be what guides a person's life. And if, if that's the case, then I think there's something to that. Those who are following after the beast, those who are looking towards him for some kind of guidance are going to lose that. And yet they will still not repent of their deeds. They will still persist. I mean, they won't admit that they're wrong, basically. Yeah. Or, or they know, and this is maybe, it's a sad thing. It's a tragic thing when people see that, like, you know, whatever vain things that they were serving don't actually deliver them, but they don't know what else to turn to. You know, they, they refuse to turn to the true light, um, true the, to the Lord God. People just fall into despair and into um, anger, into sadness, bitterness, or as it's described here, you know, they're gnawing their teeth, they're gnawing their tongues in anguish. Um, it's just, it's, that's a, a, a darkness. You know, this is weeping and gnashing of teeth kind of stuff. Or if like someone who was following like a, a well-known figure, just to kind of use it in more general terms, and that figure is disgraced in some way so that they fall, you still will have some who will persist in following them, even though it's clear that they are, you know, totally bankrupt, that they're totally no longer what they should be. And I think we see that kind of thing happening all the time. People who refuse to let go, even when it's obvious that they shouldn't be holding on anymore. Yeah, they start, what do they start doing? They start picketing. They start, you know, they just start screaming and yelling. Um, we're recording this, the the Roe v. Wade leakage stuff is just coming out and you can you can hear the shrieking. You can hear the, the cries of anguish. People are refusing. They, they will refuse and they will do anything to try to resist what is true. And that includes just, you know, this is, I think this is, maybe the power of self-deception. Um, when you fall for something, when that's shown to be false, it only makes you more angry, right? You kind of double down on, well, no, I refuse to see that what I've been doing is wrong and I cannot, I will not repent. I won't change my mind. Yeah. And I think we see that happening very clearly here in this, in this bowl. But I think we should be moving on to the, the, the sixth bowl so we can keep moving sure. forward. So let's take the next one. Yeah, this one's much longer. So I'm going to read the whole thing again here. But um, okay. there's a lot of, there's a lot, again, this intensification idea comes up. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs, 
who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Yeah, there's a lot here. <laughs> <laughs> let's start. Let's start with um, the the way we've been doing it because Revelation is great this way. There's um, repetitions in just the pattern of language. So the bowl of wrath that's always the same is poured out on something. So what it's poured right. out on here is the river Euphrates, and the Euphrates River is significant because it is the eastern. If you think of the Middle East. The Euphrates River is kind of that far eastern border between, sort of between Babylon and the area closer to Israel. So when the Babylonians came over and took the the people of Judah into captivity, they had to go over the Euphrates River, and then they took them back across the Euphrates River. And what, what John is seeing here is a kind of apocalyptic repetition of that. That river is going to be opened so that something like what happened with the Babylonian captivity can happen again. Yeah. And I think, and especially with the, the kings from the East, I think we should see in that a kind of a similar image to like with Ezekiel and Gog and Magog, uh, these, these far, far peoples, like far away kind of a thing, but they're not really known to Israel you know, the kind of people that they don't know anything about and are terrifying for that reason. And but when they are coming into the across the Euphrates, you have a kind of invasion of this in this terrifying, these terrifying kings, right? These these unknown things. And uh, and I think the 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 frogs and we'll talk about that in a minute, too, the, the spirits which are coming out and are gathering what we see here with the, the coming kings and all of these things is a preparation for war, which is what we get at the end of the, the vision, right? Yes. Invasion is a great word for it. That's what's happening here. God's wrath is poured out and the result is an invading army comes and sets up camp. And now the, the forces that are, you know, that comprise this invading army are described as uh, these frog spirits and, you know, I'm sorry to our, all of our frog listeners, but the frog here is not a positive thing. <laughs> the frog, the frogs are coming out of, and you can hear everything that's in league together, the dragon, the beast, the false prophet. These things are all, you know, different. They might be different, quote unquote, characters, but they're all working on the same team. And the frogs do the same thing. They lead, they lead this invading force. They lead this invading army and they lead them in war it's now it's it's a little bit unclear here zelwyn isn't it who exactly this force is coming against it's not explicitly said at this point anyways yeah i i don't think it's explicit at this point but i think the idea is there i mean it's pretty clear these are this is an army gathering against the saints you know this is an army coming against god's people and we're going to see the outcome of this battle in, a, in later chapters, right? So that we, we see them gathering against Jerusalem. I think sitting next to the sea is how it's described, actually. This is what, for 19, if I remember correctly, or somewhere yeah, it's in there? Gonna, it's, we have a little interlude, and then we're going to come back to this battle. Yes. Right. So this battle is kind of the, the beginning of the long interlude, even though we're going to get the seventh bull right away. So it's, again, that kind of break that we're going to see, as you saw with the other ones, but the bowl is set, the, the last bowl is set before the, the break is over. Right, right. But uh, the, the frog spirits, of course, I think, again, calling back to the plagues of Egypt, right, that they are like the frogs which came up upon the land, that sort of thing, this unclean spirit, unclean probably because, you know, of where they're coming from, and frogs also being kind of a, an unclean animal to begin with, if I, if I remember correctly. Well, yeah, these, you know, they don't, do they live in the water or do they live on the land? You know, they're these, they're, they're these transitory creatures. They're, they live in both. And that's part of what is unclean about them. Or that, that might be one of the reasons why the Lord says, you know, right. Amphibians they're not, are gross. 
don't eat them. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, French. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, so you have these spirits coming forth out of the, the dragon and the beast and the, and the second beast, and they're explicitly called demonic, right? Performing signs, going out to deceive the entire world. So they are coming in order to gather the kingdoms of the world against the people of God and to prepare them for the, the great battle, which is to come. Yeah. So their great deceit is we can, we can get rid of God, right? right. I mean, right. if you boil it down, this is, and again, you know, are we look talking about literal frogs? I don't, I would not take it that way. This is apocalyptic genre. Let me repeat that again here. We're not waiting to see frogs hopping around, convincing kings of things, but the effect of them is that they stir up the, the people of the earth. They stir up the kings and the leaders of man to say, we, we can get rid of God. We can go to war against the Lord and we can win. Um, Psalm 2 kind of stuff. Why do the heathens rage saying, let us cast away God. Let us burst his bonds asunder. That is a, that's, why would anyone think that they can defeat the Lord? But that is the deceit of the devil. That's the deceit of the demons. And it's the deceit that the kings of the earth fall for. Yeah. And I think especially with this idea of the, the kingdoms gathering against God's people, again, something we see happening throughout history, right? That the kingdoms of the world would fight against the church. But it's also something I think we see happening now with uh, the great apostasy of the world, with the the great attempts in which to do away with God. And I mean, I, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that we are living in a time in which the world is gathering itself together against God's people. Yeah, I, I don't, I mean, have these things happened already, Zoen? Yes. <laughs> are they happening now? Yes. Will they happen again? Yes. You know, and that is, that is the challenge. That's the part of the joy of reading the book of Revelation. Maybe joy isn't the right word. It's part of the insight that's gained through reading the book of Revelation. It's also part of the frustration because you want to point to like one particular, this happened when, you know, um, the French revolution took place, or this <laughs> happened when the Pope rose to power, or this happened when the Romans came and invaded Judea. Well, all of those things, right. And it will happen again, climactically. So seeing our own time and seeing the, the symptoms uh, or the things that happen like this in our own day and age, I think absolutely. Now, there, there's something else that comes in new here. So you get lots of new things. This is the one bowl that has the longest description. In verse 15, you get this other voice breaking in. Behold, I am coming like a thief. So once you see the invading army coming, you also have this. And here's what uh, why I said it, it's not explicitly said that the invading army is coming against the church, the people of God. But this voice that calls out in, in verse 15, it's Jesus talking, I am coming like a thief. You know, this is very reminiscent of, of the way that Jesus talks about his uh, return in glory. And so I think this is a call as this invading army comes don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. Be of good cheer because the one who we're going to see in, in chapter 19, uh, the word of God is coming and he's coming on a white horse and, uh, you know, he's going to deal with this invading army. So there, that little interlude, that little verse is the source of encouragement for the saints who look around at the world that we see, Zelwyn, that we were just talking about, and we see the frog spirits um, assembling the kings of the earth, and they're coming, and they look huge, and they look powerful, and who can resist them? Well, the Lord Jesus can, and he will. And I think that's an important interlude to have in this, because the sixth bowl otherwise appears to be kind of a change in tone, right? Because the first five have all been poured out onto the enemies of God's people, but now it almost seems like the enemies are going to win, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's a great point. The The first five, the wrath of God comes on some element of creation or it's against the beast and his seat of power. It's against um, the worshipers of the beast. This one seems like God is inciting uh, an invading army to destroy his people. But what he's doing is he's baiting them, 
right? right. Um, he's, he's saying, all right, let's stir him up, bring him in. And the reason for that is so that he can deal with them once and for all. Right. But as it is happening, it looks like we're about to get wiped out. And so then the call comes out from Jesus, be, you know, don't lose heart. I'm coming and, uh, you know, I'm going to clothe you with a garment of righteousness and I'm going to deal then the implicit thing is I'm going to deal with these frog spirits and the dragon and the beast and, and the false prophet. I'm going to deal with all that once and for all. Absolutely. Well, we should probably finish up this seal or seal, this bowl. Uh, we're not going to get to the seventh bowl today, but tell us about uh, Armageddon and Bruce Willis here. David. <laughs> yeah, Armageddon, you know, you look for what's the reference here to Armageddon. And this features, you know, prominently in different movies and popular depictions of the end of the world. The valley, I think the, the best answer here is that this was, well, let, let me put it this way. When you read the book of Revelation, it's kind of like, how well do you know the Bible? Right. Right. It's, it's like a, it's like you're you're treated to this game of Bible trivia. Do you do you even realize all the different references? Can you pull together all the strands that are being woven in here? And so often we, we just don't because, yeah, you know, you, you can't know your Bible well enough. But the book of Revelation is like everything coming together and it's all swirling up. The Valley of Megiddo was this ancient uh, battleground. And so the the Armageddon probably comes from the the word, the Hebrew word for mountain, Har, and Megiddo. So you get Armageddon. And so the, the mountain that looks out over this valley, this ancient battleground, I think this is where, I think this is where Jehoshaphat uh, fell in battle. Um, this is, this I, was, I, I think you're thinking of Josiah, aren't you? Josiah. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I knew it was a J. So how well do I know my Bible? Not well enough. Um, <laughs> but this is, this is where Israel, it's kind of like the ultimate arena for battles, for biblical battles. And so it's the apocalyptic place where, you know, where is a final battle going to take place? Well, of course they're going to, it's going to be at Armageddon. Well, and yeah, Megiddo, being the site of many great battles, uh, both recorded in scripture, as well as, you know, in the rest of history too. It's just kind of a natural fighting ground in the land of Israel. And so to say that the the final battle will take place there, I mean, it's basically like saying that this is going to be like, you know, I don't know, this is the cage match, right? This is where... Yeah. This is where it's all going down. This is the natural, the natural place for them all to gather in order to have the the battle that's going to decide it all. Yeah, where was the original? We need Willie here to tell us where the original <laughs> WrestleMania was. That's that's what's going on. And uh, again, just like with with a lot of the Book of Revelation, you you tie yourself into into knots when you take like one part literally. So people who say, well, it's going to happen at you know that exact longitude and latitude. And so they're very concerned about um, that particular place on the map. I think that's a mistake in term. It's just a an error in terms of the genre, not recognizing apocalyptic literature for what it is. Although to the, those people's credit, they do recognize there is going to be a final battle. Uh, you know, that is inescapable. That's going to happen. There will be a final battle. But right. where exactly it's going to happen, you know, I don't know. Well, I think especially we're not going to get into the seventh bowl today, but like the, the fact that the, the mountains are being torn away, you know, the islands are being taken out of their place. It shows that this is something beyond our experience. So we should not think of it in terms of purely literalistic, naturalistic kind of explanations. Armageddon as the great battle at the end of time is the time when Christ will finally put all things under his feet. I mean, that, that is really the point of Armageddon, that Christ's victory will finally be forever complete, right? Yeah, yeah, permanent. And uh, let's just tie a nice bow on this one then, Zelwyn. The, how we started, we were talking about these bulls of wrath and they're just that they are acts of justice, just judgments. Yes, wrath on sin, but it is the just wrath on sin and the final, the permanent victory of Christ will be when um, his justice fills the heavens and the earth. 
and it will be joy to the saints, and it will mean the defeat of those who oppose him. Um, that is the inescapable final vision. Indeed. Amen. Well, David, any final thoughts before we close for today? No, I think we've set it up real well. Next time, what we'll get, what we'll get into is this the seventh bowl, and then you're going to see the um, some of the effects of these final bowls of wrath. Um, it, we touched on it a little bit, but um, we're going to deal with Babylon and the whore of Babylon, and uh, we're really getting into, yeah, we're coming to the end now. All right. Well, this has been A Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Zelwyn Heidi here with David Apple. God love you, and God bless. Then I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Revelation 19, 11 through 14.